Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. We talk technical consultation, Warwick apologizes, we go through clearing, and we talk our policy highlights. It's all coming up. Part of the summer season, it's as, it's as established as Wimbledon or Glastonbury. You know, the newspapers will be covering it, an A-level results day in the way that they always do with the same pictures uh, and the same kind of stories of, of people dying to get into particular institutions and onto particular courses. But I... I uh... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm your host, Rachel Firth, and here to mow the lawn of HE Policy. As usual, we have three amazing guests. In Manchester, we have Andy Westwood, Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester. Andy, your highlight of the week, please. Well, good morning. My, my highlight this week was our um, politics graduation at the University of Manchester, which uh, took place on Tuesday. And as I processed up to the stage, I kind of realised that it was exactly 30 years since my own graduation in the same hall. And I looked at oh, all the kind of parents heavens. and students and thought, God, how old am I? Um, and in Lincoln, we have Mary Stewart, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Lincoln. Mary, what was your highlight of the week? Um, I think my highlight for the week was we had our pop-up social science park um, this week where uh, all people uh, from our social science faculty go out and spend some time in the community doing a whole range of things with uh, people across Lincoln. Uh, And this year they actually were... um, set up on a um, social housing uh, estate and it was really interesting the kinds of things that people came looking for advice and wanting to chat about so there was lots of stuff about how do I deal with my kids teacher for example with our education faculty um, and and I think any of us who've been parents kind of know exactly what that feels like you kind of go to parents evening and you feel as terrified as as uh, perhaps your son or daughter or whoever feels like um, so that was that was um, really really good and it was nice to see people getting out there um, and sharing um, what expertise we may have with community members and actually them learning about um, real people's lives as well so yeah that was a, an absolute highlight for me. Finally um, in Gloucestershire we have Wonky's Associate Editor David Kernahan or DK as we like to call him. Um, give me your moment of the week please. Well um, it has to be my son's uh, survey on pineapple on pizza. He was putting together a survey for Massey learning about surveys. Um, and I mean, me and him had a natter about survey design. He put together an excellent survey on 
uh, whether or not people like pineapple on pizza. I tweeted it out thinking maybe I'd get, say, 20, 30 responses and he'd have a nice little data set to play with. We have got something in the region of 1,300 responses. This is probably the, the uh, uh, defining survey on this particular issue. We seem to have ended up doing <laughs> some serious uh, social sciences research, and I'm looking into the best ways to weight what is um, a self-selecting sample so we can get an accurate uh, view. So I'm I, really I excited about that. It. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, indeed, and I don't want to ruin it for everyone, but I have seen an early tableau and it is quite eye-opening. We start this week with an announcement of another consultation, the Higher Technical Education Review. This Department of Education Level 4 and 5 review will complement the government's post-18 review to ensure the system is joined up, accessible to all, and encourage the development of the skills the country needs. So DK, what do you think this review will mean for the HG sector? So somebody in DfE really likes reviewing things. I think this is what we can see here. Um, this looks at level four and level five qualifications, generally kind of vocational in nature. So we're talking about stuff like the foundation degrees, HNCs, HNDs. Um, it's always been a little bit of a, a, um, a gap in the qualifications portfolio of this, the uh, nation. Um, and we have long looked to get the, that kind of higher level technical skills, which employers tell us that they want um, a little bit more um, accepted in the mainstream of um, education. So there's an inevitable name change. They're all going to be called higher technical qualifications. There's some tweaks around the way they are funded and supported, which links into the proposals in Olga. But the interesting thing I thought was the quality assurance for those offered by FE colleges and HE colleges. Uh, these are going to be quality assured effectively by the OFS, but uh, weirdly, despite the rest of the OFS stuff being looked at as kind of output measures, how are students doing? Are they getting good jobs? Are they satisfied? This looks at input measures. So we're looking at the qualifications for teaching staff, the presence of the appropriate resources to teach the subject, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's an odd little one. Um, and as regards the impact on the HE sector, we're still at consultation stage. It's very much remains to be seen. But I don't know if we're going to get any more impact than we did when we launched the foundation degrees back in the, the uh, mid-noughties. Uh, there was a lot of uh, fuss, a lot of promotion actually made about these new qualifications, but they didn't really take off. And I'm just wondering what has changed this time, really. Mary, what do you um, think this means for HE? Um, I I think DK's kind of hit the nail on the head where I'm not sure this is actually going to uh, move us forward um, that much in terms of all of this uh, uh, area, which we've really got to get right at some point, actually. Um, I, I also think it's, it is really strange that the focus is much more on um, the, the input side rather than the output, because that's kind of working contrary to the direction of travel that we've been moving in. And, and, you know, from my perspective, for years, 
years I've been arguing about output um, uh, evaluation rather than input because uh, we we know what what really matters is is what people kind of get in the long term. Um, yes, you want to ensure that the quality at the time is 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 good, but we have ways of dealing with that, um, which which um, you know have been there for for some time. Uh, and so I don't really understand uh, what that will achieve. But ultimately, it seems to me that we need a much bigger and broader focus around that. And maybe I'll say a bit more about that later. Well, I was both kind of disappointed and sort of disheartened by it, really. It, it felt to me as if uh, um, the people in DFE preparing this consultation had kind of barely registered that Augur had happened. And of course, this is, you know, this is like the central bit of, uh, of Augur's um, diagnosis of kind of what's what's wrong in higher education and as he he describes it the the missing middle between uh, FE and HE or between kind of you, you know uh, A level and T level qualifications and and full degrees um he he's been he's been kind of overtaken on the metaphor front more recently by uh, Lord Turnbull, the former Cabinet Secretary in the Lords, who, who described it less as a missing middle and more as a blasted wasteland. And uh, um, trumping that even more, Andy Haldane at the Bank of England described it as the collapsed left lung of the education system. So, you know, this is, by any measure, this is a kind of problem area. And I guess the the issue with the consultation is that it it, it doesn't really show a huge amount of ambition in filling it. Uh, to me, it reads like something that was largely prepared before Augur, that um, has essentially layered on top of the T-level proposals a couple of extra layers. It massively underdoes, un- underdoes what, what uh, higher education, what universities could do in this space. And it opts for a kind of an external awarding, awarding body model uh, overseen by the Institute for Apprenticeships and Technical Education. And I think... Um, none of those are proven. T-levels haven't happened. The Institute has had lots of problems. And I think a far better option would have been to encourage universities to think about offering new qualifications with their awarding bodies and with, with their, uh, uh, their powers to award qualifications and to see, um, to see what innovation we could create in this space rather than uh, to kind of follow the tram lines that uh, vocational education reform has already put in place around T levels and apprenticeships, and so I think it's uh, it's it's less a missing middle and more a kind of missing trick. The tramlines image is is quite helpful in this. It seems to me that because we've been going down a certain track and and oh we could relate this to T level or we could relate it to this, um, rather than thinking of the bigger picture and and the whole thing around the space needs revisiting. Um, Orga opened that up and it's a shame that that hasn't been connected in. That's really what I think. Yeah, we're just reflecting that this plays into a wider narrative that we seem to be dealing with at the moment where we're kind of almost covertly encouraging certain groups of people and people with certain interests uh, not to consider university. Uh, we've had a lot of publicity around the LEO data and I mean obviously that is not often helpful uh, data. We've had the comments from the uh, Tory leadership candidates um, and it the, 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 there actually uh, does just seem to be an underlying message which is no you don't want to be doing performing arts at um, a local university and you want to take an apprenticeship or you want to do a technical qualification. Uh, now, now, this plays a, a, um, against, um, I mean, uh, more than, I guess, 20 years of policymaking, which is all about the market and all about empowering student 
choice. I mean, we've uh, gone to these great lengths to make sure that s- student choice and student preferences are sacrosanct, but it feels like we don't really like what the students are choosing. Mm. And that's a worry. Right, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Jonathan Grant. I'm Vice President for Service at King's College London. And I have co-authored a piece with Deborah Bull, who's also at King's and is Vice President for London. In the piece, which is titled, What is Wrong with Public Engagement? We explore our concerns around the language and practice of public engagement and argue that universities must take a more holistic approach and shift, if you like, from corporate social responsibility, um, the term often used in the private sector, to notions of shared value. This allows universities to become institutional citizens, delivering meaningful impact in partnership with communities through, as an example, socially responsible procurement practices that could emphasise by local and social enterprises. At King's, we call this activity service in line with our informal motto in the service of society. But other universities, such as Manchester, use the language of social responsibility. The impact of reframing public engagement as service or social impact is important as it helps reframe the public purpose of universities, which is critical in this time of hostility and citizens to the value of the sector. And our key point is to emphasise that what we're really interested in is connecting with and working closely with local communities to deliver mutual value. Next up, the University of Warwick has apologised for failings and has announced an action plan to improve handling of disciplinary processes. Last year, a group of male students were involved in a group chat which subjected their female peers to misogynistic and racist comments and threats of rape. The University of Warwick faced a lot of criticism for their handling of the incident and were even a subject of a BBC documentary on the case. This week, the university published an independent external review of their student disciplinary and appeals processes. Uh, So, Mary, what did you make of this? Well, I think the first thing to say is when when a report comes out basically saying that the outcomes were basically unsatisfactory for nearly everybody involved, um, you know that uh, there was something wrong with the process. And, And what's quite interesting about all of this is that you are looking at something where on the one hand you've got the set of issues um, which are serious and significant uh, and are a big challenge um, uh, for the whole of society um, at the moment around uh, misogyny and racism Um, and then on the other hand you've got how we handle these things and how we deal with victims um, uh, in in that circumstance and um, it seems to me that um, university uh, procedures certainly in terms of, of the report there are a lot of recommendations in there, which um, I think, you know, um, uh, it is good that the University of Warwick actually commissioned an external um, report on this um, and uh, indeed had someone who's an absolute uh, expert in the area who was able to to look across the piece. And a lot of those recommendations are um, suggesting that the the procedures are simply um, out of date and are not fit for purpose and also not joined up um, and you know you can you find yourself in a situation reading through that it is uncomfortable because what you actually feel is that um, the the individual complainants and, and victims in this were kind of left um, hanging in in a lot of of, of cases but uh, you know if you just look through some of the um, the recommendations they are uh, incredibly sensitive 
sound and all the sorts of things that um, you 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 know should expect. Um, so, um, for example, one of them talking about producing simple information and flowcharts for complainants and respondents and their supporters, so that. People know how the process is going to work. Um, you, you clearly aren't in a situation, you don't expect to have to go through a process like that in whatever walk of life or whatever situation. And you certainly aren't going to um, read all those procedures in advance. So having something simple that people can follow, especially at a time of crisis, makes a heck of a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, as the establishment of a permanent secretariat, well, you would hope, you know, um, and induction training and so on. So, so it seems to me that these are very helpful, uh, recommendations. And, uh, perhaps it's something that as, as a sector, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that every university will be looking at this, uh, right now and checking their own procedures. But I think fundamentally disciplinary procedures were, uh, established in, in universities quite a long time ago and not really designed for student-on-student -student, um, uh, activities. Um, and, and actually, they need to catch up. Andy, can I bring you in on this? Um, what did yeah, you of course. I mean, I, I agree with kind of everything that Mary said. I, 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 coincidentally, the last time I was on the podcast, this was an item and, and it's been an item that's kind of kept coming back and kept coming back. But in the... Um, in the last podcast, when we talked about this, and it was uh, uh, it was with uh, uh, Selena Bolingbrook from Goldsmiths, who made some excellent points at the time, and I think we all agreed then. Uh, and this was before the uh, before Warwick had decided to commission an independent assessment of their procedures, as well as the particular issues in this case. That that we we all agreed that that was what had to happen at that time because. At that point, everybody had clearly lost confidence in the procedures that were in place, and they'd ha they'd had very little um, very little support for the actions that the university had taken at that time. So I think I think kind of you know in all of that, it's 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 certainly a good thing that Warwick commissioned the independent assessment of this. It's certainly a good thing that the kind of detailed recommendations that the report has made are being accepted and implemented and um you know it's been a it's been a kind of terrible tale and i think as mary says it's uh, it, it's an important lesson for other universities to kind of look at the systems they've got and to really kind of apply uh, the findings of this independent report to um to all those processes many of which inevitably are going to be outdated and wouldn't be able to withstand the kind of pressures that um uh, that the warwick system has kind of been found wanting it there is absolutely no reason why why this had to be uh, Warwick. This could have been nearly any uh, university. It's a real there but for the grace of God moment for the sector. Um, I think that um, if you are a student uh, making um, a complaint on something like this, it's a terrifying ordeal for students. But one thing that you want to be certain on is that the process you're following, the procedure you're following is absolutely rock solid. You want to have the impression that this is a process that has been followed many times before, that there are no surprises, that there are no arbitrary jumps or strange decisions on the uh, horizon. And in this case, unfortunately, the complainants and the victims, uh, they did not have that assurance. It's a scary, scary thing to be dealing with a process and to trust in the process and then to feel like that the process is not robust, is not, is not actually there for you. It's a real like um, 
dangling over a precipice moment when you realize there's nothing underneath you. So, I mean, absolutely, my heart goes out to this, the students involved in making the complaint. Uh, this must have been horrible for them. Uh, the recommendations are, I think, largely about professionalizing in a way that whole process, uh, nailing things down, making sure the right people are involved at the right time and that everybody knows what happens next. As Andy and Mary have both said, this is a wake-up call for other providers to look at these processes, even though they hope and they pray that these processes will never have to be used, and make sure that the processes are right and everybody knows what is happening. It's about organizational resilience. It's about staff uh, training and I feel like there's going to be a lot of that happening over the summer and uh, not just in Warwick. Mm-hmm. Thank you to hear. Mary can I bring you in for the final comment on this? Yeah I, I think that's um, completely right uh, you know kind of people who, who who will be dealing with these cases having specialist training uh, to me seems absolutely uh, essential you know if we've if we've expected that in in other walks of life it, it is time within universities uh, uh, to take that on board it, it seems to me this is a, a another kind of a key moment I can remember when I first became um, a pro vice chancellor um, uh, uh, quite a few years ago now at Sussex um, there was a, a, a real need to kind of professionalize uh, personal tutoring um, and make sure that uh, all personal tutors were aware of where there was proper professional counselling support uh, for students and this this seems to me it's a, an, an equal kind of professionalisation um, moment because e- e- the, the reliance on, on someone who perhaps uh, trained um, to be a historian or a, a chemist uh, or indeed someone who has particular expertise in marketing um, in these circumstances rather than someone who actually understands the complexity of the emotions that anyone who um, uh, is going through an experience like this might might be feeling, and and the the violation, um, you know, you really do do need people who who are able to probe and and deal with things in a in a sensitive way, and that isn't necessarily the skill set of the vast majority of people who are in um, uh, higher education at this particular point. Next up, we take a look ahead to clearing, but first we wanted to let you know that with the power vested in HE, we have declared Wonkfest Booking open. Yay! The most exciting event in the UK higher education calendar, a festival of ideas and cutting-edge debate about the future of universities, is back for its third year. We have some incredible speakers already confirmed, such as Kendi Andrews, John Kingman, Marie LeConte, when we have the King of the Wonks, which we are more than a little bit excited about. We have Nate Silver, editor of 538, will be coming to join us. With five different stages and nearly 100 speakers and non-stop programme hosts over 50 sessions over two days. We've got expert discussions, debates and conversations. We have masterclasses, interactive workshops, training and we have smaller areas running sessions where you can fill up on tips, tricks and toolkits. With an abundance of interesting things to do and see, we honestly think it will be the best two days out of the office you will ever have. And if you're a Wonky Plus subscriber, your tickets are discounted. In the past two years, we've sold out, so head to wonkfest.co.uk to book your tickets and to find out more. We honestly can't wait to see you all there. University campuses can be surprising and unpredictable places. Students, staff and visitors often do the strangest things. Fortunately, our ever-reliable security team are on hand to deal with every eventuality. For over a decade now, we've been compiling a comprehensive record of the bizarre, unfortunate, inexplicable 
and just plain weird reports from campus security. Here's your chance to hear some of the most remarkable reports from the ever-expanding case notes of true crime on campus. 2000. Patrol security officers on Beeston Lane were required to stop a zombie apocalypse. Those involved in the apocalypse were advised that zombies in the road was dangerous and they should use the Downs area. Those involved were part of the conference which is currently in residence. 2220. Report of two males causing concern adjacent to law and social science. Security attended and spoke to the males who stated they were catching Pokemon. 1700. A security officer who lives in a university house at Highfield Sports Centre arrived home to find that the bungalow being built adjacent to a rented property for her has been damaged by the air ambulance helicopter hovering over it and causing the newly built walls to collapse. 1735. Security received a complaint of a couple in the male toilets adjacent to the Senate chamber making a film. Security officers attended and after banging on the door to the toilet the couple came out. They were spoken to by security officers and advice given. The male was told to get dressed. 2010. Report of a large number of students running around the Trent building. Security officers attended. The students explained they were playing hide and seek. The hide and seek society president was found by officers and spoken to. Officers conducted a search of the building and located all the hiding students. I understand the officers declined their turn to go and hide. Uh, next up, as this is the last of the series, we thought we'd look a bit ahead to Clearing 2019. Clearing has officially opened. Um, it was opened on the 5th of July and last year nearly 67,000 people were accepted through Clearing, including those who had applied earlier in the year. So Andy, give us your take on the Clearing process and what it might hold in store for us this year. Well, I think it's uh, it's like a sort of summer standard, isn't it? Clearing in in uh, in the UK, and I, I, I'm going to I'm going to warn you now. I might try some French metaphors as I describe clearing. The first one is déjà vu, uh, which is kind of you know it's the it, it's like I say it's part of the summer season. It's as it's as established as Wimbledon or Glastonbury. You know, the newspapers will be covering it, an A level results day in the way that they always do with the same pictures uh, and the same kind of stories of of people dying to get into particular institutions and onto particular courses. But I I um but I wonder whether it might be it might be the kind of last of its of its time. And you think it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be a really intense market this year. Every pretty much every institution's gonna be in it. Um, it's still a, an applicant's or a buyer's market because demographics are still kind of on on the applicant side. But with the with a future so uncertain and um, universities not knowing about the likelihood of fee cuts, about changes to the loans regime coming from the ONS, uh, August kind of pressures on foundation years and kind of all the rest of that, you know, this could be the year where unless you fill your boots as an institution, the financial kind of consequences of this could stretch uh, deep into the future. And so, so I, I think it could be, it could be the kind of last of its kind, but it also could be a, a, a real sort of um, uh, a, a really ferocious example of kind of clearing as as we know it, as as that you know, as the market almost kind of reaches its peak moment. 
And so I'm, I'm kind of slightly nervous about it on that basis. And I'm worried that all the behaviours that have been exposed as kind of problematic in kind of the way the system is currently organised will, will make the sector look even, even kind of worse in the way it behaves in this market than, than, it, than it has done in previous years. So I'm kind of, on one hand, I'm expecting the same old, same old. But on the other, uh, I'm slightly worried that we're going to put forward our one of our sort of less attractive sides uh in a in a summer where um the opinions on kind of higher education and how it behaves and what it does will be pretty critical dk do you think this is going to be a summer of filling one's boots and the worst behaviors on show perhaps um even more so than in previous years this is a hugely uncertain time for universities we know from the release of the uh june the 30th deadline application stats release that there are more students in the system than last year overall so um institutions who may be say are uh, kind of lowballing offers or making uh dare we admit to it uh unconditional offers uh may be happy with that um, for the student, uh, with all of the publicity around Orga and 7.5k fees, uh, we may see a repeat of the 2011-2012 effect. So when students feel that there is a price cut on the way, unless they really want to go to university that year, they may choose not to, they may choose to uh, hang on. I think that's a little bit of a worry. We still have uh, the uh, B word hanging over us. Um, and this could have an impact on EU students coming through clearing. Uh, there are more EU systems uh, students in the system than there were last year. Um, and we're nearly up to 2016 numbers again, which is uh, comforting t- to know. But that could all change very quickly as well. The other trend I'm expecting to see is a rise in the number of adjustments. This is where a student performs better than expected and attempts to trade up their offer to get to a different course or different uh, provider. I've had a couple of people from various backgrounds ask me about adjustment this year. I've never really had any interest in the topic before. It's always bumped along with just a few thousand students. But I think the changes that uh, UCAS have made to their application system to make this option more prominent and easier to do. Um, I think we could see more adjustment this year, and I'm really not sure what will happen in that instant. It'll be absolutely fascinating to watch. And Mary, as a head of institution, you've got um, you've got skin in this game, right? When it comes to clearing, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's it's not a huge deal for us, but 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 it is obviously we we uh, uh, will be in clearing. Um, I, you know, I I often feel, and we are working very much in this direction. That one of the challenges, especially for an, an institution like ours, where you know nearly forty percent of our students are are either are either first in family or or from a low socioeconomic background, um, actually. You know, the, the idea of actually making a choice at that point, um, is not necessarily a good decision. Being able to prepare properly for university, being able to engage with your institution over a longer period of time so that you, when you do arrive, um, are, are more able to settle in. We do, uh, summer schools for, um, uh, our students who are joining us, uh, particularly students who have, um, uh, 
disabilities or 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 um, are particularly anxious in 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 some shape or form so that they can start to make friends early so they can settle in properly and that has a, a good knock-on effect in terms of of our retention rates um, because the students you know this is their first home from home and you know to 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 actually make a decision and within two or three weeks you you kind of you know plonked into an environment and you've had no real time to think about it I've always thought that the clearing season is not um, a, a, a particularly uh, useful one for um, students themselves. And, you know, yes, there are issues about running an institution and the responsibilities about making sure that the institution is uh, safe, secure into the future. But my main concern, and always has been, is this the right choice for the individual student? Um, and how do we make that the best experience possible? And clearing is never a good experience for people. Yeah, um, I just wanted to note something else from the June the 30th release. Uh, for the first time, we get the English index of multiple uh, deprivation quintiles for applications. And if you're used to looking at minute changes to the participation of Polar Quartile 1, then I strongly recommend you head to the wonky website and have a look because it's quite a startler. If you look at all students, students of all ages applying to university, uh, 20% of them are from IMD quintile 1. That's the second highest represented quintile um, of, the, of the country. So this is a huge increase since 2010 of admissions uh sorry applications for the uh, uh most disadvantaged students in england this primarily if you dig into the data seems to be coming from older students in england um it's not a pattern that's really replicated in northern ireland scotland or wales we've got a comparable but slightly different indices from those countries and it's not something that's showing up in polar so this is a little bit of good news that perhaps the sector may have missed and perhaps um this points to an influx of older students coming in through clearing so this is very encouraging now it's time for yes but does it correlate here to set this week's correlation question live it's wonky's associate editor david kernahan thank you very much rachel so last week, I looked at the relationship between the NSS overall satisfaction score and the Leo median earnings for the creative arts class of 2014-15. And, spoilers, there wasn't one. Uh, but maybe the student experience of the qualification was secondary to the number of academic staff who supported them. So, by institution, does the student-staff ratio correlate with median salary one year after graduation for the creative arts students that graduated in 2014-15? Yes, but does it correlate? Okay, well, I'm going to say no, and I'm also going to be a smart-ass here and, and actually say that correlations are not causations. But I agree with you that <laughs> I don't think it's going to correlate either because I think the this this you may call me a smart ass as well um, <laughs> uh, because I think the kind of the the labour market consequences are stronger than the kind of uh, uh, in other words the kind of labour market state of employment in particularly these types of courses yeah. are going to have a stronger effect than the kind of um, uh, student staff ratios. 
Uh, you're actually both correct, and you actually are hey. both smart asses. Only does the number of academic staff um, supporting students not correlate with Leo median earnings. It also doesn't correlate with the NSS overall satisfaction score. So it looks like, from a statistical point of view, that we've got three independent variables here, n- uh, uh, none of which have nothing, have anything to do with each other in a statistical sense. So um, as to if we're telling students that they should apply to the the uh, very best universities with the uh, best staff student uh, ratio and we should that, 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 that they should look at evidence like the NSF to see whether they're being more they'll be more satisfied at a particular place uh, we're telling them that but we can't see any link between that and the salary they get at the end which for me kind of drives a bit of a hole through uh, most HE policy of the last kind of five or six years and finally, as mentioned, this is the last episode of the podcast for this season. And before we all have the summer off to relax and finally read the auger review around the pool, we thought it would be fun to talk about what we have learned about HG policy this year. So, DK, as someone who has an unhealthy interest in policy and the mechanisms of policy development, it seems appropriate that you should kick us off on this one. Uh, firstly, I would say do not read the auger report around the pool. Read <laughs> the uh, KPMG report on uh, uh, track and the cost of teaching undergraduate students, it's fantastic, and it's got much better graphs in. Um, so, <laughs> All regard, my holiday reading is based on the There we are, holiday graphs. reading with DK. That's this what is I a like. new feature now. <laughs> uh, so um, we thought we'd end this thing, just because such a lot has happened this year in terms of policy. We've all talked about Olga and all the rest of it. But there might be little other things that we've learned that we just want to make sure are uh, uh, captured for our listeners and for posterity. My big thing that I keep coming uh, back to is something that a lot of people might not have been following, which is the delays to the Digital Futures program being run out of HISA. Now, that program started as an attempt to effectively uh, rationalize data collection, to, to tell institutions rather than just having to collect all this data for HESAT and also run your institution. Why not just collect data once for the same purposes? And uh, this was all well and good, but then uh, the Higher Education and Research Act and the birth of the Office of Students meant that the inkling of uh, uh, real-time data was grasped upon uh, by our friends in Nicholson House, who are particularly keen to... Ha- have effectively a live dashboard of UK HE to look at changes in numbers and uh, activities much closer to when they happen rather than the year gap. Uh, to uh, many observers, the pressure that this has put uh, Data Futures under has meant that uh, Data Futures has firstly been paused and uh, earlier this week been delayed for a year. So, I mean, this idea of real-time regulation, of spotting patterns in data and using that as a tool to regulate the sector, that's not going to happen until 2021-22 at the very, very earliest. And even then, there's still going to be a few things that are hanging outside that. So, um, the, I mean, this idea of regulation, this regulatory framework, which is predicated on a light touch but lo- uh, loads of data, that's not gonna happen we're not gonna have a responsive regulator because when it's not got the data to respond 
too. So what I think I've learned from this is that, I mean, anyone can do basic HE policy. It's, I mean, even Damien Hines can do it. You know, it's pretty straightforward. But if you're making a data policy and a data collection policy, that is a whole different uh, ball game. And that is something that needs to be taken much more seriously by regulators and by the sector as a whole. Well, on one level, stacks, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, I should confess that I too have got an unhealthy interest in this stuff in both HE and FE policy. So it's something I should probably seek treatment for over the summer. But uh, um, it's, you know, I mean, it's been a kind of, it's been an incredible year for for policy formulation in terms of the uh, quality, sorry, the quantity of it, but not necessarily the quality. Uh, You you know, Orga, the level four and five stuff that we discussed uh, earlier on the podcast, but also in R&D on kind of industrial strategies, got local industrial strategies kind of coming out now and continuing thinking about how we get to the 2.4% target in uh, in R&D spending and and there's tons more of this to come you know we'll have a new government we'll have new ministers uh, uh, we may have seen the last of Damien Hines's um uh, attempts at policy making and probably the last of uh, uh Philip Hammonds and Greg Clark's as well so so you know more of this stuff is going to come at us very very quickly and of course there's a spending review coming too so so that's uh, that's significant but I think I think out of all of that I'm I'm sad to say that I, I think the main thing we've learned is that uh the, the higher education sector still isn't very good at engaging with it and still isn't very good at, at seeking to try and shape policy as it's uh, as it's being prepared and I think you know if you look at our thinking about what might be coming over the hill with a new prime minister um and indeed you know opposition policy making in kind of uh, uh labor the lib dems the brexit party um I, I think i think the thing we've learned most is that is that we're still pretty poor at engaging with it and influencing it and i think that is a worry given what's uh, ahead of us yes well i'm i i think that uh, i i would agree with with andy that we're not very good at engaging with this and and I, and what i'm going to talk about is something that i don't think the um uh, universities um the he uh, part of 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 the sector has been very good at, at engaging with and it's quite clear that um yes this this uh, debate developed out of auger but actually it's this is the bit that i think has genuine legs in um in auger and that is this uh, beginning of a, an idea that perhaps there should be a tertiary sector rather than this very clear divide between you know a bunch of 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 further education and a bunch of higher education and neither none that none of the you know the train shall meet and they they have completely separate um uh, civil servants who 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 deal with them and i think we 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 will see um that idea because it it's it's an idea that is is quite prevalent um in uh the the possible uh new prime minister's mind i mean he wrote about it um it's quite prevalent in in labor's thinking as well and actually i think there is something there that universities are trying to ignore um but i think we could see the emergence of of a very interesting um set of 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 ideas if people are really creative uh, and and don't see these things separately um, around tertiary because um, Andy mentioned the industrial strategy. Actually, if you if you think about um, uh, what we need for this country in terms of productivity and innovation and all those things, actually, um, 
uh, technical skills uh, need to run across the piece. Employers couldn't give a damn where they're being delivered. What they want is something that's relatively seamless. Um, and actually, we need to think much more strategically uh, about tertiary as, as an entire sector moving forward. So that is about it for this week. To delve deeper into anything we've discussed today, you'll find the links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show next season, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Andy and to Mary and to DK everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen and thank you to listening right to the end of this podcast we'll be back in your feed in September and until then stay wonky Look, it was a sensational introduction, wasn't it? I must say, that, oh. was, that was that we're off to a good start. So I was going to say the podcast, then I saw that was a bit cheesy. So I'm actually going to say probably that I do always enjoy the UCAS and the cycle reports because I basically, I really like the, the way you can put it together and it kind of gives the whole story and I enjoyed them last year as well. So it's nice to see how things have. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.